invades the heart of whom he will, and he takes that person home to glory, right? That, that's the whole point of the imagery there. It's not that there's this, this um, you know, different degrees of blowing through your life at different points based upon your spiritual temperature. See how you, you, you cannot take a metaphor and expand it out and just attribute whatever you want to then to the work of the Holy Spirit. Same thing with the idea of him being a baptizer, right? Uh, you see that happening in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. It's referred to again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where you have people who are searching for the baptism of the Holy Spirit as though it's possible to be re-plunged into the greatness of the Holy Spirit through some sort of experience, right? Um, where the Holy Spirit comes and uh, I am just immersed in his presence here in this place, in this worship service. I've been, I've been rebaptized by the Holy Spirit because his presence is just so real to me here right now. That's how some people think about it. Or they're looking for the baptism of the Spirit as being kind of like a, a second salvation or a second blessing, that I come to faith in Jesus Christ um, you know that, and that's how I'm saved. But my spiritual life really gets going when I work myself up into a state of frenzy and find the full baptism of the Spirit, um, and that's kind of a second inauguration of spiritual progress that I'm searching after. Is this idea of being baptized into the Spirit or attaining to a specific level of spiritual giftedness that doesn't come until I've received that baptism? Well, that, that's not what the scriptures are talking about when it refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, you can't take the imagery of baptism and, again, just apply it to whatever you want it to mean, all right? That would be another kind of fallacy in the same way, all right? Same thing with the idea of a helper. I'm just trying to give you guys some ideas to show you how things have come off the rails here. John 14, 16, Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit to his men and says he is coming to be a helper to you. Well, what have people done with that image? Well, the Holy Spirit is my buddy. The Holy Spirit is my friend. The Holy Spirit is my co-pilot. Why? Because they take their own understanding of what they want a helper to be and say, well, because the scriptures call him the, the, the helper, well, this is what I understand a helper to be, and therefore that's what the Holy Spirit is. Do, do, do you see how backwards that is? You cannot start with your understanding of something, your definition of what you would want the Holy Spirit to be, and then because that happens to line up with a particular statement or image in Scripture, now you apply all of your desires to the truth of who the Holy Spirit actually is. That is how we've gotten into the situation that we've gotten into in the broader church at large. Okay, people looking at a specific aspect of a metaphor and then superimposing largely their own desires for what they want to experience, and then applying that to the definition of the Holy Spirit and understanding Him accordingly. That is so very backwards. That's not how our theological understanding is formed. Okay? We have to look to the totality of what Scripture has to say about the Holy Spirit and allow that to drive our definition rather than to a metaphorical description. Now, can we learn things from those metaphorical descriptions? Absolutely. That's why God gave us those metaphorical descriptions, to help us with our finite minds understand. But we have to understand the point of the metaphor 
the way that it was intended to be understood in the context of the text and then apply that particular facet of our understanding to our definition of the Spirit rather than just superimposing whatever we want to on the text. Okay? Court, did you have a question or a comment? My comment is that's what we learned in John Graves. There you go. We learned God and build up what we think of him. And the author said we start with him, but it's for what God is. Yeah. Very good. Don't start with yourself and then superimpose your own image on God. Start with the image of God and superimpose him his image upon yourself. That's the way it's supposed to work. There's a, there's a distinct direction. I'm glad that, uh, that you guys remember that, okay? So look, here, at the end of the day, guys, th- there, is, there is so much information given to us in the pages of Scripture about who the Holy Spirit is and what He is like that there is absolutely no excuse for us to be caught in a condition where we do not understand Him or we do not know Him Um, The Holy Spirit is referred to 324 times in the pages of Scripture. He is absolutely present. And as I told you the last time around, uh, we noticed that the Holy Spirit is present at... Where where does he get... Let me ask you this. Let's see if you're listening. I know it was early last time, and it was the first week. Where does the Holy Spirit first show up in the story of Scripture? Genesis 1-2. Like you're literally a matter of like 10 words in and boom, there the Holy Spirit is. Where is the last place that the Holy Spirit shows up in the scripture? At the very end, the final chapter of scripture, there again is the Holy Spirit. See, he is there from beginning to the end. Let me ask you this question. Where does the Holy Spirit first show up in the pages of the New Testament? Nope. Well, he does, that's true. But for the first time, where does he show up? Matthew chapter 1, you'll find references to the Holy Spirit. From the inauguration of the revelation of Jesus Christ, there is the Spirit of God. Okay, He's everywhere. He's, he's mentioned in 23 out of 27 of the New Testament books. He's mentioned 56 times in the book of Acts alone. That's the highest concentration of any book. Why do you guys think that's important? Why is it so important that the Holy Spirit is so prevalently involved in the book of Acts? It's the beginning of the church, right? There is no church without the person of the Holy Spirit. He is integrally involved in the birth of the church. He is very much present and alive and there, okay? Um, and the dominant theme of all of those usages, particularly in the New Testament, is that the Holy Spirit is God's good gift to you. That's what he wants you to understand. God gave us the Holy Spirit so that we might know the Spirit. He did not give us the Holy Spirit so that we might be confused and unsure of what He is like. No, the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift that God has given to us as His followers. Let me illustrate that for you this way. Um, This Sunday, we're going to be jumping into John chapter 14. And the whole point of John chapter 14 is Jesus coming to His followers to comfort them coming to his disciples to bring them peace and calm. Because as chapter 14 opens, as we're going to find out on Sunday, they are absolutely terrified out of their minds. They are so scared. I mean, Jesus just gave them the greatest commandment, and they go rushing by his his issuance of the greatest commandment, and they latch on to one statement in particular, and that statement is this, I am going away from you, and where I am going, you cannot come. And that just sends those dudes reeling. 
They cannot fathom. What do you mean you're going away? You've been promising us a relationship with you. The very first words that you ever spoke to us as your followers were, follow me. And now you're telling us we can't follow you? What in the world is going on here? And what Jesus explains to them by way of comfort to them in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John is, guys, it is necessary that I would go away from you so that I can bring something better to you. See, what he's explaining to them there is that a life that is filled with the presence of the Spirit, that relationship to Jesus that comes by faith and is evidenced by the power of the Spirit in your life, that is a better, more superior kind of relationship than anything they had known up until that point. Now just wrap your head around that for a minute. I'm giving you guys kind of some advance notice here about what's coming on Sunday so that you're, you're ready for Sunday, okay? But these are guys who have spent three years walking with Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1, the apostle John is going to say, these are things that we have known we have seen with our eyes, we have heard with our own ears, and we have touched with our own hands. I mean, they had a pretty special, unique level of access to the person of Jesus Christ during his incarnation. And Jesus says, what you guys have and have had with me here over the past three years is an inferior form of relationship to what you are going to have when I leave. Because if I do not leave, then my spirit, otherwise known as the helper, cannot and will not come to you. And the relationship that you are going to have with me through God's spirit is a superior kind of relationship to the one that you've always had with me. So it's in your best interest that I leave and go away. That is the, the main thrust of how he comforts his petrified followers. That a relationship with Christ through faith that is made possible by means of his spirit residing within you, that is superior to any other kind of relationship that is possible. Okay? That's why we say the Holy Spirit is God's greatest gift to you. Having the Holy Spirit in you is better than having the person of Jesus Christ standing in the flesh next to you. That's a pretty powerful statement, all right? Now I've practiced for Sunday and we're good to go on that front, all right? No, but you see what I'm saying, okay? That, that's why I'm saying that, that the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift that could be given. It's better than if you had been a disciple and walked with Jesus yourself for three years because now you have Christ not just with you, you have Christ in you, all right? And that's, that's the point of where Jesus is going here in chapter 14. So come back on Sunday and we'll give you the full, the full rundown of what's going on there. Um, but but I, I, I say that by way of illustration that the Holy Spirit, the relationship that you have to him, it is essential for you. And it is a gift of God to you. And so how foolish would it be to just not seek to understand who he is or what he's like? Because he's God's greatest gift to you. It would be like someone giving you access to a bank account with a billion dollars. And you just saying, I don't really need to know the logging credentials for that. Uh, nah. 
I mean, I know that not technically I'm a billionaire and all, but uh, life is working just fine with my checking account, checking account balance. And I, I don't need any more paychecks or access to the account with a billion dollars. I don't need the credentials and I don't, I don't need to know how to log in or, or, or what it's like to have access to that kind of money um, because it, it's unnecessary. Are you kidding me? I mean, if somebody came up to me and said, I've got a billion dollar account marked with your name on it, you've inherited it, you had some rich uncle that you didn't know about, boy, wouldn't that be fun. I mean, where are the credentials? Log me in, man. I got some things I could do with that. I mean, I got a lot of things I could do with that. that, that that's, that's the point. It, that, that, that's a parallel kind of illustration, right? Of course you would want to know uh, what the credentials were. Of course you would want to know how to log into an account like that. Same thing with the Spirit. God has put His Spirit within you how in the world could you not care to get to know who he is? That's why this is so important. You understand? Okay, well, let's keep going, all right? So who is the Holy Spirit specifically? Well, let's talk about it. Number one, he is God. Here's what that means, all right? He shares the essence of deity with the Father and the Son. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, what's it say there? Go and make disciples teaching them all I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of who? Just the Father? Forget the Son and the Holy Spirit? No. Just the Father and the Son? The two most important members of the Trinity? No. What does it say? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? What does that imply? Equality. They are all equal in nature. Okay? That's what we have to understand. The Holy Spirit is not a lesser form of God. It's not an emanation of God. It's not, it's not a vision or a mirage of God. No, the Holy Spirit is God. Okay? We have to understand that first and foremost. Second, the Holy Spirit is essential to the plan of salvation. We saw that last time, but we'll touch on it again here. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He is the one who accomplishes the work of regeneration. He is essential to the plan of salvation. As we'll find as we get down deeper into the Gospel of John, we're going to discover that the Holy Spirit issues from both the Father and the Son. John chapter 15, verse 26. The Father and the Son are the one who grant the presence of the Spirit to the life of the believer. All right, so he is equal to God. He is essential to God's plan. And he issues from the Father, both the Father and the Son. Which then leads us to a particular conclusion, and that's this. His nature... His purposes and His thoughts are one with both the purposes, nature, and thoughts of the Father and the Son. All right, let's go ahead over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 10, because I want you to see this. This is a particularly powerful point as it relates to the Holy Spirit, and it just knocks out, punches in the mouth a lot of the chaos that you see happening in the church as it relates to the Holy Spirit. Let me show this to you, okay? You ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Um, hang on a second here. Let me just make sure. 
Okay. Um, wait, what am I doing? I'm in chapter 12. That's not going to work. I'm like, this is not the passage I thought it was. All right. There it is. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There was an extra one there in my chapter digits. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. Okay. These things... Uh, if you look there in context, what eye has seen, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, those things that God has prepared for those who love him. All the spiritual blessings of salvation and life in Christ. Those are things, verse 10, that God has revealed to us through who? The Spirit. And here's how. For the Spirit searches everything. Get this. Even the depths of God. Okay? For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is within him? The only way that you can know the mind of God the Father is if you have access to God's spirit. Because the only person who knows your mind is you, the essence of your spirit, who you are. Right? The only person who, who truly knows the inside and outside of what's going on up in here is me, the essence of who I am. All right, that's what he's saying here. And that same thing is true with God. The only way for you to get access to what is in the mind of God is through the Spirit of God who searches and knows the mind of God. Okay? So no one comprehends the thoughts of God, he says, except for the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might now understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, he says. Now look, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, because he has the Spirit of God. That's his implication. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. All right, there in that text, do you see the equivalency that exists between the Spirit and the Father? But also the equivalency that exists between the Spirit and who else? Christ, right? Where ha you having the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the same thing as you having the Spirit of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit and Christ are what? One and the same, even while they maintain and retain their distinct identities. Okay, there is an equivalency there between the person of Jesus Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit. But there's also an equivalency there between the person of the Holy Spirit and the person of God the Father. Where it's the Holy Spirit who knows the Father because he and the Father are, are, are what? They're one. Do you see the fullness of the Trinitarian theology that's there? You take the Spirit out of that, and what do you have? You have a lopsided, unknowable deity, okay? And that's why the Holy Spirit is, is, is so essential there. They are one, all right? Which means this. If something is true of the Father, it is also true of the Spirit. If something is true of the Son, it is also true of the Spirit. And the flip side is also true. If something is true of the Spirit, then it must also be true of the Father, if something is true of the Spirit, then it must also be true of the Son. Which means that when you attribute something to being a work of the Spirit, you are attributing that 
to being a work of God or a work of Christ or something that Jesus himself would have fully endorsed. Now, I don't know about you, but if you spent much time on YouTube at all, uh, watching videos of our author's uncle pulling the shenanigans that he pulls in his services, Benny Hinn, for instance, doing all this crazy, chaotic stuff, ask yourself this question. Do you see Jesus, the one that you know well, because we studied him all, all term last fall or spring, whenever that was? Do you see Jesus walking into that room and just saying, I fully endorse this message and everything that I see going on here? Well, of course not. And if Jesus would not be endorsing the chaos and the confusion and the lack of clarity that is going on in a room like that, then you know it is not of the Spirit. Because the Spirit and the Son, they are what? One. They're equal to one another. Okay, uh, there, there's a principle here that we can borrow from the field of geometry that might be helpful to illustrate this for us. Um, I was reading some books this summer on Abraham Lincoln and his perspective on abolition of slavery. And there was a mathematical principle that was very helpful to Lincoln as he was thinking about the equality of all men and the equality of the races. And he pulled it from the field of what is known Euclidean geometry. I know that sounds pretty technical, but it, it's, it's, it's really not, actually. See, there's a mathematical principle that Lincoln said is just self-evident. And I know it's self-evident because Euclid, way back in the BC era, like way thousands of years ago, was able to draw and deduce this mathematical law based on his observation of the universe. Euclidean geography, says something like this. Now, I'm no mathematician, so maybe I'm going to mess this up. And if you are a mathematician and I do mess it up, please let me know. But here's what it says. If object A is equal to this, and object B is also equal to this, if object A is equal to this, and object B is equal to this, then objects A and B must also be equal to what? each other. That's Euclidean ge geometry. Okay, that's the, Did I get that right? Yes! Alright. I did math this morning. That's good. Why is that a, a law of the universe? Why is that a mathematical law? Why is that something that is unshakably true? You cannot disprove that because it is fundamental foundational truth that undergirds the universe. Okay? It's because that reflects the nature of who God is. Okay, he is the one who establishes that which is true. Now, in the case of Lincoln, for instance, okay, he, he says, all right, if a, if a white person is equal to humanity and a black person is equal to humanity, if object A is equal to this and object B is equal to that, then, therefore, it stands to reason that what? A white man and a black man are also equal to each other. That was the way he applied the principle. But we can apply the same principle here, okay? If the Father is equal to the Son, and the Spirit is also equal to the Son, then the Spirit is also equal to who? The Father, okay? You can flip it around. If the Father is, if the, if the Spirit is equal to the Father, 
and the Spirit is equal to the Son, then the Son is also equal to who? The Father. Do you see how the same principle works? And if one of them is equal to God, then all of them must be equal to God. Okay, let's just kind of apply that principle down a level. Okay? We've studied theology proper. We've studied all the great truths of that which is reality about the nature of God. We've looked deep into his attributes. We've seen all of his omniscience, all of his omnipresence, all of his goodness, all of his mercy, all of his compassion, all of his justice. We've seen all of his aseity. You remember that term? Yes? No? Okay, that's all right. All right, all those things that are true about God the Father, if God is equal to all of those attributes and the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father, then what must the Holy Spirit also be equal to? All of those same attributes. You want to know what the Holy Spirit is like? Look at the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know what the Holy Spirit looks like? Look at what you know to be true of God the Father. Because all of that truth about both the Father and the Son must also be true of the Spirit. Which means you cannot attribute works, thoughts, deeds to the Spirit that you would not simultaneously be willing to attribute to the Father or the Son based on what you know of them. Do, do you see where we're going here with this? Okay? If you want to know the Spirit, there is no confusion about what He's like or who He is or what He does. He is one with both the Father and the Son. Man, it's early for Euclidean ge geometry. All right. Very good. Okay? So, What's the impact of that? Let me go ahead and just give it to you now. Okay? It means that the Holy Spirit is also equal to the authority and the glory of the Father and the Son. Okay? That's the impact. The Holy Spirit shares fully in both the glory and the authority of God the Father and the Son. Therefore, Here's the specific application to our lives, gentlemen. Do not disrespect him. Do you see that? You owe the Holy Spirit every bit as much reverence as you would give to God the Father. You think to yourself, boy, if I was standing in God's throne room, man, I would fall flat on my face like every other human being who ever has. You stand in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Why would you not give him the same level of authority? Why would you not accord him the same level of honor that you would accord God the Father if you were standing in his presence? You have God's presence, one who is equal to the Father living in your heart. How could you not respect him? How could you not strive with all every fiber of your being to walk worthy of being in his presence here today? Why? Because he holds equivalent glory to God the Father. He holds equivalent authority to God the Son. And if the Son rules the universe and the Father sits enthroned in splendor and you have one equal to them in your heart, well, then you, you better walk carefully. That's why Paul says, take care how you walk, that you walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What is that calling? That you now not only bear the name of Christ, but you bear His Spirit within you. Right? That's how we're supposed to walk. And that's the significance of the fact that we now Know the Holy Spirit who is God. I am falling way behind because I've taken too many detours into geometry this morning. Let's keep going, okay? The Holy Spirit is not just God. I've shown you that. I've proven it to you, and we've talked a little bit about why that's important. The Holy Spirit also has personhood as well, all right? Now, 
The definition of personhood is that you have the necessary composite vehicles that are essential to individuality. Okay? That's what it means to be a person. Specifically, that you have a mind, you have a will, and you have affections. All right? We're going to talk more about that as it relates to us as human beings um, when we get down into anthropology next spring. Okay? But those are the essential component parts of what it means to be a person. All right? And part of being a human being is that you have unique personhood. There is nothing else, no other being in all of the created order that attains to the status of individualized personhood. Okay? The thing that sets mankind apart is the individuality of having personhood. Okay? I have the ability to formulate thoughts and engage in higher reasoning. And those thoughts are then going to be evidenced through the words of my mouth. I have, as a human being, a specific will, the ability to set my heart upon a purpose or a goal and to pursue it, which then governs the actions that I am going to take. And that will meshes with my mind to produce certain affections. And because of my affections, that is going to drive the things that I desire. And now my emotions are going to follow after those things that I desire. Okay, so if you put this into a chart, you've got mind, which drives your thoughts and ultimately your words. You've got will, which drives your purposes and ultimately your actions. And then you've got your affections, which drive your desires and ultimately your emotions. And so the specific equipment that God has given me as a human being to demonstrate my mind, my will, and my affections are my words, my actions, and my emotions. The way that I express my personhood through the external manifestation of words, actions, and emotions is going to be different, perhaps, than the way that the Holy Spirit expresses the reality of his personhood. Okay? His words, his actions, his affections or emotions are going to be manifested differently than mine. But here's what he and I share in common. The unique elements of what it means to be a person. Because just like I have a mind, a will, and certain affections, so too does the Holy Spirit. He clearly has a mind. You can see that in Romans 8.27, for instance. 1 Corinthians chapter 2.11, we just, we just read that. It's the mind of the Spirit that knows the mind of the Father. 1 John chapter 5, verses 7-8, through 8, the Holy Spirit is capable of formulating His own thoughts, so much so that He testifies to the reality of who we are. He's clearly capable of unique thought. Okay, which is, then, which is then expressed via his word. Uh, he also has the second element of personhood. He has his own unique will. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for instance, says that the word of God was not produced by the will of who? Man, but by the will of who else? 
God, and then he goes on to define which, which member of the Trinity he's talking about. It was men moved by the Holy Spirit, you see. It was by the will of the Spirit that the Scripture is produced. So he has a mind, he has a will, he also has affections. It is possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Now, again, if you remember back to theology proper and the lesson on impassibility, the manifestation of God's affections do not look the same as human emotions, but they are affections nonetheless. Yeah, just because the manifestation doesn't manifest itself in emotions that swing back and forth, our emotional state is defined by change. God does not change, but that does not mean that he does not care about things. He absolutely does. It's just that his state of emotion or his affections does not swing on a pendulum like ours. But the truth I'm pointing you to here is that the Holy Spirit has affections, just as you and I have affections. Okay? He is a full person with all the equipment of a personhood that give him a unique individuality. All right? So what's the impact of that? Let's just cut down to the chase. Okay, let me just say it this way. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit is just like you. What did you learn in the forge today? Don't tell your wives, the Holy Spirit's just like me. Why? Because your personhood is limited, it is finite, it is created, and because of the fall, it has become inherently sinful. All these things about your personhood have been bent towards sin. The Holy Spirit is not just like you, but it does mean that the Holy Spirit is relatable to you. Why? Because you and the Holy Spirit both share the commonality of having a mind. Your thoughts can be patterned after his thoughts. And his thoughts can be grasped and comprehended by you and your thoughts. How is that possible? Because both of you have a mind. And so therefore you're capable of understanding one another. Okay? Because you both have a will. You and the Holy Spirit, you share a will, though it is different. You still have the fundamental reality of having a will. Your will, your purposes, your goals and actions can be bent to come into alignment with his will. All right? Because you both have affections, your emotions, your things that you care about can be brought into alignment with the things that the Holy Spirit cares about. Now, how does that aligning of mind, will, and affections happen? Through your own brute strength? No. It says he is resident within you and empowering you to make those adjustments and enlightening your eyes to see a need for those adjustments and strengthening you so that you are able to say no to your flesh, put it off, and instead put on the character of Christ. That's what we talked about all summer. You guys understand that. But see, your ability to align yourself with the reality of who the Spirit is is because both you and He share the identity of being individual persons. This is why it's so important that you guys understand that the Holy Spirit is not just some ethereal, unknowable force field that's out there. No, He has a unique personality and, per, and He has attained 
the identity of personhood. And because he is a person, so now too you are a person having been created in his image. Not the other way around, as Court already pointed out to us. Do you understand what I'm saying there? So, what does that mean? What's the impact of that? Well, here it is. The Holy Spirit is therefore knowable. And because he is knowable, I need to embrace a relationship to him. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27 clearly explains this to us. That the Holy Spirit is there. He is resident within you. You are one with him. That's what it means to abide in Christ, to be baptized into the Spirit, and to be united with Christ. That now you're able to embrace him and the work that he is actively doing on your behalf. Guys, I think a, a big part of the problem that we have in our circles is that we see all the chaos that's going on out there uh, because people have bad theology about the Holy Spirit. And we say, well, we don't, we don't want to be anything like that. These people who so focus on the Spirit and a bad definition of the Spirit um, that they completely miss the reality of who the Holy Spirit is. I guess that means we're done. I don't know. All right, I'll just talk loud, okay? It means that we don't, we, we don't want to be anything like them and all the chaos and crazy that's happening. And so we're going to swing way over here and just really ignore him completely. That's the tendency that I, I see in a lot of churches like, like ours. Okay, we don't want to be anything like the crazy churches that are abusing the Holy Spirit. And so instead, we're just going to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is there, but then we're going to pretend like, like we don't really need him or know him or really engage with him in a meaningful, relatable way. See, the pendulum, because we see the abuse there, can't be swung way over here, where now we walk and live as though there is no Holy Spirit. Well, we've got the Word of God. That's enough, isn't it? Well, it is. But the only reason why you can understand the Word of God is because you have the Holy Spirit. Don't pretend as though He doesn't exist. No, there, there's a relationship that needs to be pursued there with Him. And that really is what I so appreciated about the chapter that we read this past week in Costi Hinn's book, is that he admonished us to not ignore or despise the Spirit, but to acknowledge the reality of His presence in our life and to seek to get to know Him. Now, one of his specific application points, I'll just try to deal with this quickly, was uh, praying specifically to the Spirit. Do you guys read about that? Anybody have any questions about that? Everybody good with that? Well, if you're good with it, I don't need to explain it. That's great. <laughs> okay, I'll explain it anyway then. Um, look, um, so the question is, is it permissible for me to pray directly to the Spirit of God? And the answer to that question, I believe, is yes, but be careful, okay? Um, because... You, you, we need to distinguish here as we answer this question between that which is prohibited in Scripture. There is nothing in Scripture that says you can't or should not pray to the Spirit of God. But there's also nothing in Scripture that would prescribe us praying directly to the Spirit of God. All right? So it's, not it's, it's neither prohibited, it's not as though you can't do it, but it's neither prescribed, that you must do it. And here's the reason why I believe that is. Every prayer that you pray ultimately is a Trinitarian prayer. Okay, because God is three in one, 
you cannot divorce them from each other quite as completely as we tend to think of them. Well, this one is aimed at the Father, and that one is aimed at the Spirit, as though they don't know what's going on between the two of them. No, they're, they're three in one, okay? So if I'm praying to the Father, that is simultaneously a prayer to the Spirit and vice versa, okay? So the normative pattern that Jesus gave to us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, is that we would pray to the Father... In the name of the Son, through our union with the Spirit. Okay, you cannot pray to the Father if the Spirit's presence is not there and you're not aware of it. You cannot pray to the Father if you're also not simultaneously aware of the, of the work of the Son that has made this prayer to the Father possible. Okay, so every prayer needs to be fully orbed in a way that you understand this is being aimed at God collectively, wholly, the wholeness and fullness of who God is. To the Father, in the name of the Son, through the power of His Spirit, that now makes this prayer and my ability to talk to God possible. The reason I can do that is because the Holy Spirit is right here. All right, so every prayer, ultimately, is a prayer to, in a sense, the Holy Spirit. Now, is it wrong for me to address a prayer specifically to the Holy Spirit? No, that is not wrong. Okay, and the reason why is because God gave you the Holy Spirit to be your helper. But remember what we've said. What is the goal of the Holy Spirit's ministry? It is never to apply attention to himself. It is always to apply attention to who? The person of Jesus Christ. And so if you find yourself always praying exclusively to the person of the Holy Spirit, are your prayers really in line with the desires of the Spirit? No. Because he wants your attention on the glory of God as seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And so that's why I say it's not necessarily normative that every time I go to pray, it's Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, uh, because as Jesus taught us, my prayers are to be directed to the Father. But in certain instances, would it be wrong of me to aim a prayer specifically to the Spirit? No, a prayer of confession. Spirit of God, I know that I have grieved you tremendously through my sin here. You are within me, and here I've drug you into the presence of evil because of what I've just done. Forgive me. Or... If there is a particular task that is before you, for instance, Charles Spurgeon, I've been told, um, every, uh, every Sunday morning as he ascended to the pulpit, prayed, Holy Spirit, I believe you are real. Holy Spirit, help me now. Holy Spirit, do your work in the hearts of your people. Is that inappropriate? No, not at all, right? But is that the normative pattern of what I'm supposed to be focused on when it comes to my everyday prayer life? Also, no. All right, so is it prohibited? No. Is it normative? No. Okay, you're allowed to do it, but that's not to necessarily be the exclusive pattern of what guides and directs my prayer life. Okay, so that's kind of what I would say towards that end. You, you can and you should pray to the Spirit in your pursuit of a relationship with Him, but that is not to be the exclusive focus of your prayer life. Does that, does that bring some clarity to the question? Okay. Very good. All right, well, it is 7.31. Uh, if you've got any questions, come see me afterwards. I just used up all the time this morning. So I hope that's been helpful to you guys. Next week, I'll be out at a conference. Pastor Alex will be speaking. Uh, but I hope you're enjoying this study and continue on in your reading, all right? We'll see you next time around. Thanks. Thanks. <music>